Uh, this morning, I'm going to preach uh, an entire book of the Bible, so I hope you're ready. Uh, I've been doing an overview series of every book of the Bible at our church, and uh, a couple weeks ago, I preached on 2 Timothy. So we've gone from Genesis all the way up through 2 Timothy now. Uh, actually, Titus last week, have Philemon coming up next week. Uh, but this morning, I'm going to give you an overview of 2 Timothy, so you can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy if you would. The title of the message is Preach the Word. In 1662, the Church of England expelled 2,000 plus pastors from their churches. And the charge was that they did not conform to the prescribed book of the Common Prayers. So the Book of Common Prayers has a lot of good things in it, but the Church of England demanded that these pastors all across the land use this book when they wanted and demanded that they say what they wanted. And so they had a, a, a conflict of heart there. And many of them, as I said, over 2,000 of them were expelled from their pulpits. One such pastor was named Richard Baxter. He played a vital role in calling the area's pastors to unity. Uh, he would get into theological debates with a man named John Owen on certain issues. Um, he was no slouch. Of course, neither was Owen. In fact, if you can read a sentence of Owen and understand it, you're in rare territory. He's just one of those guys that talks above all of us, most of us. But these men were known as men of God. They didn't need the praise of other men. They didn't need the subjugation of other authorities outside the church who thought they should have authority over every local body. These men stood for God's word and they resisted theocratic rule. Some other names you might know that got expelled were Thomas Watson, uh, John Flavel, and Thomas Manton. If you're trying to learn how to preach, you should read Thomas Manton. He is an outline genius. These men showed the courage and the strength to be under God's yoke and God's yoke alone. Baxter would call them to preach every sermon as a dying man to dying men. And they truly were known as a man of God. You might not be aware of this, but there's only one person in the New Testament who is called a man of God. Uh, it's not Jesus. That's normally the answer, but it's not Jesus. He was the Son of God and known as the Son of Man. It's not Peter. Peter was known by many names, um, nor was it Paul. It was actually Timothy. Uh, in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul calls him the man of God. And Timothy, as you know, was, uh, as the Scriptures say, acquainted with the Scriptures, having learned them from his mother and grandmother. Um, so he understood the significance of this title that Paul was bestowing on him, and he would use it again of him in a very familiar verse to you that we'll get to in a little while. Um, but other men were known as a man of God in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was quite common 
to be called a man of God. We have Moses in Psalm 90 and Ezra chapter 3, verse 2, known as a man of God. You have King David called a man of God in Nehemiah 12, 36. You have uh, the great prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 13, 19 called a man of God. But to summarize what this means and what Paul is trying to convey, besides putting him in the category of Moses and Elisha and King David, he was calling him to fulfill his ministry. You see, when we think about Timothy, we think, oh, he's just this fearful young guy. He doesn't really know what's going on, and he had to be encouraged by Paul so much. But how could God's man do anything less than fulfill everything he was called to? And this letter I need to introduce to you a little bit so that you understand the weight that Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy. You see, Paul is at the end of his life, if you read through 2 Timothy, he is convinced he is going to die. He says he is at the end of the race. And he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is for all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is, is talking in, in, at the end of his life. It's the last book he ever wrote, the last letter he ever wrote. But there was also something else going on that we need to be aware of in this time frame. You may have heard of a guy named Nero. So in AD 64... The great city of Rome uh, was on fire, uh, about a third of it. And some people think he's, he is so wicked and dejected. I mean, he would kill his own family members many times over when they would defy him. So no one trusted this guy. He was deranged, to say the least. So they think maybe even he set the place on fire because he, he wanted to have an excuse to persecute Christians and persecute them. He did. He would, in fact, use Christians to light his gardens. So when you think about Timothy, think of a a 30, 35-year-old man at this point. He got saved under Paul's ministry. And now in this ministry where he is, he has this wicked ruler who is searching for people to turn into candles. So when Paul is writing this, remember, he's not with Timothy, he calls Timothy by these these dearly beloved terms, and he wants to impart to him kind of a a final parting shot so that Timothy is laser-focused in life. If you've kind of maybe wondered from time to time what your focus might be, this letter is going to clear it up. If you need reminded of your purpose and you just need a little more fuel in the tank, this letter is going to be for you. You see, Timothy needed a shot of courage to guard the word, to teach the word, and to preach the word no matter what. And Paul was going to do everything he could to infuse that that direction into Timothy so that no matter what came his way, he would be ready. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. 
as Paul pours out his heart to his young son in the faith. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, I'm reading out of the ESV here, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Who encourages you by their prayers? For Timothy, that was the man who was inspired to write 13 books of the New Testament. That was the man who led him to faith in Jesus Christ. That was the one who lifted up Timothy day and night and drew courage from Timothy's life. You know, when we think of these prayer warriors in our lives, these, these people who are constantly lifting up the church and, and God's name and, and, and us, um, when you just see them coming, it provides great strength, doesn't it? Sometimes all you need to do is see that strong Christian coming your way. You're like, "Mm, I I can make it today. That's what Paul was to Timothy. Look in verse 4. He longs to see his friend. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul gets filled with joy just by seeing Timothy. These guys are tight. They have a bond. They've served on missionary journeys together. Timothy was sent out as Paul's emissary to Ephesus and other places when when Paul would spread the gospel and he would leave Timothy behind to, to set things in order. But even Timothy needed encouraged. If you look in verse six, I want you to fan into flame the gift of God in you, Timothy. You see, Paul didn't just want Timothy or any disciple he had made to just feel like they were only surviving. He wanted Timothy to thrive in the setting where Christians were being persecuted unlike any other time in history with the power of the Roman army, which no one could stand against except our Lord Jesus. You see, in verse 7, he says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's the same God that is in you if you are a believer. You have the, the same God who gives Timothy the strength to unleash the word and to to still be spoken of thousands of years later, that is the same God that is in you. And you'll see the security that Jesus bought at the cross. You'll see the power of the Holy Spirit living in and through people in in this one book. And you'll see that all of this is done by the power of God. Dear Christian, you are not alone in your struggle to live for Jesus Christ. Timothy needed to remember these things. So he provides them, he provides Timothy the courage and the direction he needed to speak the word. 
That was the introduction. Point one is this. If you follow along, looking at verse 8 in chapter 1, this is the, the first responsibility to unashamedly guard the gospel. Timothy needed to unashamedly guard the gospel. Though his mentor was in prison, though he was saying he was going to die, Timothy, do not be ashamed, not internally. See, he, he knew Timothy was fine internally. He needed to, to spread the word still. He needed to let it out. Therefore, in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Here it is. By the power of God. By the power of God. You see, he must guard the gospel without shame, but he must also embrace what comes with it, which is real suffering. Not just because somebody put a sad face on your Facebook post. Not just because somebody looked at you with a a weird look or, or didn't like your Twitter or heaven forbid, unfriended us on social media. You have to embrace real suffering. See, Paul was not in his first imprisonment here. He was in his second. The first imprisonment, he could come and go um, and and have visitors. And um, this one, he's in a cold, dark cell. We know that because he asks for his cloak at the end of this uh, at the end of uh, 1 Timothy. And, and he asks, above all, bring the parchments and, and my books. He was a, a true Bible scholar, of course. But we know he was, he was suffering in a real way. But look at what the text says at the end of verse 8. This is all done by the power of God. And you say, well, how do we do that? How do we live life by the power of God? Well, here's the good news. God takes care of that part. God takes care of that part. Our part is to embrace the suffering, whatever that may be. Whatever that may be. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, he calls on Timothy further to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. When you embrace suffering, there is a change that happens mentally. And this is something the enemy doesn't want you to think about. If you don't mind suffering, there's no way to intimidate you. There's no way to make you shrink back. What am I afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything because I know God is living in and through me. And by his power, I am living out this life And you'll see later by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's nothing that can stop us. Therefore, we become unstoppable in God's plan. No one could stop Paul. They could kick him out of the city, but all they would do is spread the gospel other places. There's no way to stop someone who who is not afraid. So you embrace it. That's our part. We embrace it. We, we share in it. We get the privilege. You, you, you know, many times the apostles were beaten and they rejoiced in it. Why? Because they thought it was a privilege to suffer for the king. 
It's like someone who takes a bullet for the president. It's their privilege to do that. Timothy needed to become even more bold for the gospel to rise above his fears because he indeed was to unashamedly guard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to look at verse 9. This is not just any kind of calling. He needed to remember his calling, that it was God who saved him, and it says, and called us to a holy calling. We are saved and called to a holy calling. That is one observation here in the text, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. God has called you to his purpose, his purpose of sharing the gospel with the world, but not only that, but of guarding the gospel, of doing everything we can to make sure above all else the gospel remains pure. And when did this plan start? It wasn't when he saw and recognized us and thought we could help. It was before the ages began. You're part of a plan that started a long time ago, and no, he didn't mess up. He wants you as part of his army, a disciple-making army out there in the world and in here as we come together in fellowship, in love. He wants us to be part of guarding the truth. Look in verse 14 of chapter 1. We do this by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Paul calls Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul's already said, I'm sure God's going to help me to finish the race and to guard what's been entrusted to me. But Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you by who? By the Holy Spirit within you. This unstoppable person of the Trinity, which no one can touch, not even Nero. You see, he was elevating his responsibility and giving him no way to wiggle out of it. I don't feel adequate. He's going to address that soon. I don't feel capable. Well, all you have is just almighty God residing in you. Is that enough, dear Timothy? So you add to the power of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus secured it. The Father brought it with his power. And the Holy Spirit enables it in our lives. You know, we must guard the truth or people will destroy it. They won't just ignore it. They will destroy it. In fact, they will not just ignore it and try and destroy it. They'll pervert it and try and change it into something that it's not. They will call evil good and good evil. Recently, this last month at a national prayer breakfast, you may have heard, there was a lady who got up. She was one of the speakers at the prayer breakfast. And she, uh, living with her boyfriend, began the prayer breakfast by joking about her immoral life. Now, that's, that's a bad rap on her. But that's also a bad rap on everyone else who was listening who she thought would be okay with that. What kind of reputation 
that they have to invite that kind of jesting to start a national prayer breakfast? Was there no one to guard the truth? Did she not think anyone would come up and say, uh, ma'am, that's not this prayer breakfast? And of course, no one did. No one stood for the gospel as she made fun of God's holy word and God's plan. You see, Paul didn't want Timothy as a young man to be influenced in that way by anyone. So he continued to draw out and to clarify what it means to guard the truth. Timothy, your life is bigger than you. Our lives, dear friends, are bigger than us. We, we, we stand for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we need to be ready to stand before him one day. And we won't care who else is in the room at that point. Come rain or shine, peace or prison, we need the grace to guard the truth. So first of all, on this letter, I, I wish we could preach every verse this morning. But the first point is just to unashamedly guard the truth. The second point is to train others in the truth. See, that's the mark of a good church. You guys do that here. You, you preach expositionally from the pulpit and you preach and teach expositionally in the classrooms and you just continue to let the lion out. 2 Timothy 2.2 is a clear call for generational teaching and discipleship. Look there if you would with me. It tells Timothy, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And here's where this message now brings us all in. Okay, first it was to Timothy. Now it's to everybody. We're all looped in. Teach others also. Step one, find faithful men. Find them. Don't, don't just sit around. Go find them. And then when you do, train them, not just so that they will be built up, but so that they will also build others up. All of the teachers that you have, all of the leaders who are training other leaders, all of the things that are going on behind the scenes, that's the first step in a healthy church and discipleship. And as they train others and those people then train others, we have this army for the truth powered by God. It's a lot of work. It's not just for pastors and elders, but for all men. Ladies, you need to be trained in the truth so that you can teach other ladies the word. And I know some of you do faithfully. And we need to continue that on in whatever role God has given us to do so faithfully. And that is the mark that we want to be known by. Are we faithful to God in training others? He sets the standard pretty high. And he, he compares him to many things. I'll just point out two. So it's like, how are we supposed to do this training? In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says this, First, be an approved worker. Do your best to present yourself to God. Notice it's to God. 
as one approved. A, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He is the judge of our lives. He knows when we're just mailing it in. And he knows when we've put all the effort in that no one sees. Right? We don't need to stand up here and get a pat on the back. We know that we want to unequivocally stand before God. Or when we see him and we, we do the face plant. And we get on our knees. And he puts his hand on our shoulder. We want to hear those words. Good and faithful servant. Above all else. And Paul was directing Timothy towards that. He, he, he's not even mentioning the suffering going on specifically, just in general. We are to be approved before God. And how do we do that? We rightly handle the word of truth. Rightly handle it. To rightly divide it. To rightly divide it. You say, okay... After my 50, 60 hours a week, and that's just at my job, and, and I've got a family to take care of, and then I'm serving here at the church, and, and, and I just don't feel like I can be useful to God in all of this study and, and sharing it and, and teaching it, and I just don't have that, that in me. Listen, you were designed to serve God in your own unique way. Not all are, are is, the, is the hand, not all is the foot. We're thankful for that. Not all speak. Uh, it's the important things behind the scenes that go on that pulses are most important. You think about this. If uh, you remember, there was a huge strike. There are strikes all the time in New York City. But do you know what the biggest strike ever was that will hopefully never, ever happen again? It was when the trash truck guys were like, we're not doing it. And the city was piled high with trash. No one ever looked at them the same again. Probably gave them all hugs when they're coming around. Thank you, right? But it's the things that we take for granted that really make everything sing in a church. The microphones work, right? The, the practice that goes into to leading us in corporate worship. The chairs aren't dirty. 30 people, I need to have you guys come to our church and clean. That is an amazing testimony to the fact that you want to serve Jesus and how you are called. And that is important. But sometimes we think ah, there's just no meaningful way. So Paul hits all of us as he's talking to Timothy. Look in chapter 2, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone, anyone, cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You want to be useful and ready to our Lord Jesus Christ? Then set yourself apart and take on the holy calling to which you have been called. It's not just the pastors and the elders who have been called to a holy calling. We all have. In context, in verses 15 to 19, it's what sets up that 
that calling for all of us and tells us how to do that. It's the putting aside of iniquity. It's avoiding irreverent babble, which leads to ungodliness, the very opposite of holiness. Put aside these things, he's saying. Therefore, cleanse yourself. Be useful and ready for the master. He says in verse 17, those iniquities spread like gangrene. In Philadelphia, there is a neighborhood known as Drug City. It's nicknamed Zombie City as well. And uh, a lot of folks there are down and out. They're, they're openly on heroin and drugs. The heroin there is laced with tranquilizers that they use, that vets use, um, to stabilize horses. And the people are taking this. So um, if you look this up later on YouTube, um, I don't want to hear any of that in here. If you look this up later, you'll see people kind of bent over in like a zombie position. They're half asleep and half awake. Now, unfortunately, some of the combinations of those drugs start to eat the skin. So wherever you inject it and it spreads, it eats the skin. And there are overdose medications, but they don't work on this. And there's, there's entire people groups. There's hundreds of people all day long during the day who are just kind of stuck. The drug spreads like gangrene. Gangrene is something which removes blood from any part of the body it infects, rendering it useless. Gossip renders a church useless until it's dealt with. Gossip spreads like that gangrene. And it needs to be removed. And we always need to do a heart check to make sure I'm not just throwing out some prayer requests, but that I am not gossiping at the same time. That we need to protect our brothers and sisters in Christ and that we need to deal with what we need to deal with to avoid irreverent babble. And if Paul, in his last letter ever, is saying Timothy needs to look out for that, then we always need to be aware of that in our own churches as well. So Timothy is to train others to be an approved worker and an honorable vessel before the Lord. So he unashamedly guards the truth. He trains others with the truth. And the last thing that Paul is going to call him to is to preach the word. You turn to chapter 3 with me if you would. He's going to encourage Timothy. Timothy, let the lion out of the cage. The lion knows what to do when you release it. You, you don't argue with the lion. You don't try and tell the lion, no, that's not how it works. I've got a better way. No, every animal bows 
to the lion when it's unleashed. It does its work. God's work is living. His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow. It goes deeper than we could go to change us from the inside out. And, and Timothy needs to know that, that people are going to not really want this. See, there are times when people want the good teaching. They, they want to know exactly what the word says and they want to know exactly what the original author meant to say to the original audience and how that timeless principle applies to their lives. But Timothy, it's not always going to be like that. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. This is quite the list. But understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. You've had those conversations, right? You're just spinning your wheels the whole time. Nothing you say appeases them. They will be unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. That, that, that's quite the list. And when we think about that list, like, wow, that's, that's an unholy army coming our way. We can get fearful, but... Paul already dealt with fear in chapter 1, verse 7. He's not given us a spirit of fear, right? But of power and love and self-control. He's already set Timothy up with the way to succeed in all these things. And when a person considers this list, we might tend to doubt our ability. Like, how can I stand up under such pressure? But he's already dealt with the source of our power. It is by the power of God that we live and breathe and move. And so we need to focus on those things as they come. And though Timothy was the only one in all of the New Testament to be called a man of God, he was still just a man. Like Peter, who walked on water. And we, we like to say, oh, but he sank. But I don't know about you, but I've never walked on water. Like King David, who led armies. I mean, he was the, the Navy SEAL of all Navy SEALs. He was the Army Ranger, if you would. He was the guy you didn't see coming. No one but King Saul had the training King Saul had, and David cut part of his robe off. David was far and above a soldier for God, and yet he had to run away from his son. He was just a man. Like the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest to walk the earth, right? And he, he put down all these 400 
prophets of Baal or Baal, whichever way you like to say it. There's 400 men who have swords. They're slashing themselves to try and call down who they serve. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven. I mean, I can't do that, thankfully, right? I wouldn't want that ability. Probably be misusing it every week. Okay, Lord, this city, this time, let's go, right? And you just hit the fire button and there it comes. And what did Elijah do after that? He ran away from one lady. So quickly our courage evades us. Or Moses who split the Red Sea. Split the Red Sea with a massive army coming his way. And basically a giant family hanging out on the beach. You know, army, mountain, beach, water. Where are we going here? Well, let's just part the whole sea. And then he got so tired of all these people as time went on that he strikes a rock and takes the credit for bringing the rock out. Watch me. I'm going to strike it and watch. I'm going to do it again. Takes the credit and even Moses, the most humble, meek man that ever walked the face of the earth, gets banished from entering the promised land. All he was allowed to do was look. We need courage. And, and we need to be able to say we need courage. It's okay to, to feel like I'm a deflated balloon. You know, when you want to bounce and all you do is hit the ground like a beanbag. You just sit there. And that's why we have each other. That's why we have God's word. That's why we have the church. And that's why God gives us things that are unstoppable like the word going forth. And as we use that, we let it out. It equips us for life. The Word equips us for everything we need in life. Look in 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that, here's this phrase, the man of God may be complete, equipped for how many good works? Every good work. I don't know about you, but I want to be known as complete. I want to be profitable in some way in life. I want to be useful to the master. I want to be equipped for every good work, equipped for life. And Timothy needs to unleash the word because that is the source of you and I being equipped for everything God has called us to do. Preach the word here. The word preach is keruso in Greek. I am no Greek scholar, but every pastor who's been trained knows that one. Okay. So I know like two words in Greek. That's one of them. Okay, Caruso, it's, it's, to, it's a herald to proclaim. You don't change the message. You don't come up with the message. You just take what's already been prepared and let it loose. Preach the word. I charge you, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, you've got to want that too. Rebuke, you've got to want that too. 
and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's how the elders should lead us. That will humble a guy instantly. I've got to do everything with complete. Can I just do it with a little patience? Just, just, just a little bit? No, complete. Why? Because it's by the power of God. We're not representing ourselves. We're representing a holy God. So you must preach the word and unleash the lion. Like Lloyd-Jones says, set the pulpit on fire with the truth and people will come watch it burn. We, we shouldn't be up here just, just talking about mundane things. We, we have the life-changing power of God, and we need to her- be a herald of it and to preach it. And I know that's why you're sitting here today, because that's what happens in this pulpit week in and week out. They preach and proclaim the Word of God. A godly man is on fire with the truth, Lloyd-Jones says. A godly woman is known for being a woman of the word. A mature child is known for responding to the word of God. This is the same word that was used of Jesus when he preached in the fields. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was outside letting it loose. Jesus also preached from town to town. Let us go on to the next town, he says, that I may preach there also in Mark 1, 38. Jesus preached in the synagogues, Luke 4, 42. And he also sent the 12 apostles out to preach, to Caruso, to to herald. We see that in Mark chapter 3, verse 4. He sent them out to preach. Peter even told us exactly what Jesus commanded them to preach. You realize that? We don't have to wonder what they said. Oh, when they went out, I, I, I have to, like, what would you say? Well, Acts 10, 42 says this, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's what they preached. The gospel, forgiveness, mercy in Jesus' name, grace In Jesus' name. And I don't know if you're here and you're wondering if you're saved, but you can be saved and sanctified and set free from the bondage of sin right now. You just put your faith in Jesus Christ, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And Scripture says in Romans, you will be saved. There is no need to walk out of here carrying the burdens that you came in with. You can just leave them at the foot of the cross. Notice what this amazing charge that Paul gave him came by. He didn't just say in 1 Timothy 4.1, I, I charge you to preach the word. He elevated this to the highest thing he could ever think of. I charge you in the presence of God. Our message is going to change when we're in the presence of God. 
there's, there's no more guesswork. You see this in, in our senior saints. The closer they get to what they feel is the end of their life, the things that they decide to talk about condense. Right? They want to talk about Jesus and family. Right? That's, that's where they want to be. They, are we going somewhere for a vacation? It doesn't matter as long as the family is there. Do my children and grandchildren know Jesus? Why? Because they, they're starting to get this laser focus. And Paul said, I want you to have that focus your whole life. Not, not just towards the end. And it doesn't get any weightier than to have a charge given in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Friends, that's the charge you have. That's the charge I have, to guard the word and to teach it and to herald it to everyone. Paul calls him in chapter 4, verse 5, says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Leave nothing out. Don't, Don't skip over anything. Fulfill it, all of it. You know, the nonconformists of the 1600s were eventually restored, most of them, to their pulpits. They did not cave. And, and when the Church of England kicked them out, there's, there's no, like, court of appeals. It's do we stand with God alone or do we stand with the culture. Our, our fight is not new, but they held fast and they unashamedly guarded the truth. They taught it to others and trained and made disciples and they preached it from the hilltops, whether in their pulpits or out in the fields. May we do the same by the power of God. Let's pray. What an amazing letter, Lord God, that we have here before us. Only skimming the surface, Lord, even compels us to draw near to you. Lord God, I pray that you would give everyone here the courage to to trust in your word to look fully into the word and to be prepared for every good work, trusting in you that this will happen by your power. Lord God, I pray that you would bless this local congregation just beyond anything they could imagine or ask for your glory and your precious holy name. Amen.